Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 172. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is hair color cosmetic chemist extraordinaire, Valerie George. Hello, Beauty Brains. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your questions about whether a product's price can indicate anything about the quality whether glycerin and aloe vera actually do moisturize, what salicylic acid is doing in products, and how legitimate are beauty product and ingredient trends. Plus, we'll cover a couple of stories that we found interesting in the cosmetic industry. Should be a fun show, but first, we should say hello to Valerie and get on with our famous inane chit-chat to start the show. Hello, Valerie. Hey, Perry. How's it going today? You know, it's cold. It is really good. It's like negative four degrees here. <laughs> yeah, I I don't miss those days at all. So if you've listened to the show earlier, you guys know that I moved to California about eight years ago, and I really do not miss those days at all. Well, I don't like to complain about the temperature or the weather much on the show. Today I brought it up, well, mostly because it's on my mind because this window is freezing. But also, so this happened to me last weekend. I went, my wife and I went away for a nice weekend. It was very nice. But, you know, as I run outside every day, it was, well, it was like one degree outside. And I only had these skimpy gloves. So I went running. I come back and my hands were numb. And now my fingers are still numb. And it's, you know, a week later. <laughs> It, that's probably not good, right? I don't think that's the cold, Perry. I think you have something wrong. I'm sure to, it's, it seems to be getting better, but just really slow. I, I hope it's nothing very, <laughs> I hope it's nothing serious. Yeah, well, the one thing I don't like about the winter and whether or not it's cold or warm in California, in the winter, you know, the earth is tilted differently and everyone experiences that thin air. I'm suffering from extra dry skin right now, so I'm really excited that we're going to talk about some moisturization questions today. Yes, but let's move on to some beauty science news and talk about a couple of stories that we found interesting. A new study has come out on cosmetic business news that 71% of consumers are buying beauty on their commute. You mean like um, when they're on the train or something? Or well, I... I hope that's where they're buying it because if you're in LA driving on the 405 freeway, I couldn't imagine being on your phone uh, buying products. So the study was done in a metropolitan area like London, actually not like London, it was London, where public transportation is the main method of how people get to work. The study found that the average weekly expenditure of commuters doing online shopping was anywhere between 89 pounds and 153 pounds. So that added up over the course of the year contributes about 22.8 billion pounds per year to the economy, which is about 14% of overall online shopping in the UK. Wow, who knew the beauty industry was such a big thing online, huh? Amazon, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's no secret that brick and mortar shopping is in decline and online shopping is increasing. But I found this really interesting because even myself, I prefer to shop in stores where I can look, feel, touch. But when you're on social media platforms, and 
not really just brand websites anymore. You know, you're scrolling through Instagram and you get these pop-ups coming up, ads tailored to things that you're interested in. So it's very easy for me to say, ooh, what's this new mask that I see someone using on this Instagram ad and head to their website and in just a couple clicks I can buy. You know, I've never been much of a shopper, but my wife, she's she likes to shop. And I remember when we were first when we first sort of got together, she would go out shopping like every weekend and it would just be like an adventure for her. And she doesn't do that anymore. Now she sits on her iPad and just scrolls through Instagram. This is when I knew Instagram was getting really big is because she was on Instagram and she's like just ordering all these things. And so every every couple of days, there's a new box that comes to the door. I'm like, oh, she was shopping. Yeah. So as consumers, it's great because it's sort of tailored to us based on, you know, this big brother data that's being collected with our browsing. But for retailers, I think it's extra important to keep in mind that this is how consumers are shopping. They're finding this little bit of downtime. I'm on the train. Instead of reading a book, I'm going to be on my phone browsing around and it's important that they have websites that are mobile friendly and make the shopping experience easy because I'm sure if it's challenging to purchase on the phone, someone may not buy from that brand. So it just sort of speaks to the overall consumer brand technology experiences becoming increasingly important more than ever, I think. This has really changed the way beauty pro- the beauty product industry is, though. It used to be uh, the way the beauty product industry work was that you'd have these big companies making these big brands and they get their products into Walmarts and Targets and that's really what all the focus was. In fact, the company I work for, we were on a, we were on a product, new product launch schedule that coincided with when Walmart redid all their shelves because they were our biggest, cust- uh, our biggest customer. Um, but now the big guys don't know as much about the internet as some of these small companies. And so that kind of has really leveled the playing field with smaller brands versus the bigger brands. Yeah, I work for a brand that's actually professional only. So you have to go to a professional venue to get it. And it's very interesting because do people shop that way anymore? I I know I do. You know, I like to still go to the store. I'm old-fashioned slash, you know, old in my habits, but it definitely is a changing landscape. It was very interesting, this article for me. It really says how the beauty industry is changing. All right, I saw another change that the beauty industry is doing, and it's a story about uh, the good folks over at Unilever and their new commitment to transparency. It seems like the the big companies are are finally hopping onto this transparency trend, and they've uh, Unilever has pledged to list a breakdown of the ingredients in all of their fragrances, so anybody can see what they're using. Now they started this program in early 2017. They finally completed this project, and they are now listing all the ingredients in their fragrance that have any con- that are in, in there at a concentration of greater than 0.01 percent. This initiative goes further than is required by cosmetic regulations. Uh, if you don't know, there's a thing in, in the regulations for cosmetics. If you have fragrance in there, now fragrances are made up of dozens or hundreds of ingredients, and you only have to list the word fragrance. You don't have to break down all of those ingredients. That's what the regulations say. Unilever is embracing this transparency trend, and they're like, we're going to show you all of the ingredients. Now, while they weren't, they didn't 
weren't regulated and required to list all their fragrances in the EU that you were actually required to list uh, any fragrance allergens. So they have this list of like 26 ingredients that could be in fragrances that cause allergies in enough people. So you have to list those on your ingredient list. But most of the ingredients and fragrances weren't listed. You know, there's this, uh, this documentary called Stink. Have you seen it? Oh, you know, I did watch it and I live tweeted about it. I, I was very frustrated watching this documentary because it's a gentleman who knows nothing about this industry sort of trying to expose it. And it was very one-sided. I didn't feel that it was a, a balanced look. Yeah, I, I watched it too. And, you know, I mostly came, I, mostly I don't like documentaries because I find all documentaries are, they all feel like they're leaving something out to me. They're all like, they all seem very biased to me. But this one in particular, you know, I've heard all of his claims before. So when I went into it, I, I already had sort of a negative feeling about it. But when I came out of it, mostly what I ended up feeling, I felt kind of bad for the guy. Uh, because you could see his passion for this is kind of fueled by some tragic event in his in his uh, life. And while, while his... The whole theme of the the show, I think, was terribly biased and misleading. Um, I I did end up feeling some empathy for the poor guy. I did as well, and only because I wanted to reach out to him and help educate him. And and I actually did mention something to him. I did tweet about some fragrances at the New York National Seminar for Cosmetic Chemists that we went to in December uh, about fragrance. And he reached out to me. It wasn't about the film, but just about the the fragrance industry and regulations in general. And he had some not nice things to say, but it just goes to show he has a lot to learn, but I I don't think he's willing to open his mind to that. It felt very closed and one-sided. And, you know, how do you convince people to be open-minded? I agree. But I'm curious what uh, he'll have to say about this, because this is what he's pushing for. Unilever is now listing their their fragrance ingredients, and now any consumer who is interested can just go to their website and find out what's in their fragrance. Now, in truth, I don't think this is going to change anyone's behavior, and uh, cons- I mean, mostly consumers don't care. I mean, most consumers don't bother reading ingredient lists on the bottles, and I really doubt that somebody's going to go this extra step and go to the website and look something up. And unless you have a chemistry degree, I'm just not sure how this really benefits you knowing that your product contains delta decalactone in your fragrance, you know? Yeah, I, I'm i a little skeptical, too, that while it is transparent in a way, it feels very strategic on behalf of Unilever, and I applaud them for having this transparency, but it does feel a little, well, how do we know it's really being fully transparent. I'm not really sure how to articulate what I'm saying, but sort of with um, skeptical eyes, I'm looking at this and saying, A, how does it help anybody? But B, is 0.01% really listing everything? Or is that Unilever deciding what's right right and wrong to list? I don't know. I just, it's hard for me to comment on this. Well, I say knowledge is power, but sometimes you know, companies will overwhelm you with information and that makes them look good and it maybe covers them from liability while knowing that you're not going to read it. I mean, I'm reminded of those like digital agreements that you have to sign whenever you update the software on your iPhone. Like who actually reads any of those things? This reminds (laughs) me of that, right? 
<laughs> Perry, I've actually read those. <laughs> oh, well, okay. I, well, well, I know, you know, it just seems ridiculous to me. Well, our lawyer at work, now this is not legal advice. He said I can't use it as legal advice, but he did tell me I'm probably better off not reading it because no one actually reads those, and he was sort of embarrassed that I've read them before. <laughs> uh, he said you probably just shouldn't read them because right. the status quo is nobody reads them. But Exactly. Well, if you're curious, you can check out the fragrance ingredients in your Unilever products by going to smartlabel.org in the U.S. and Canada or unilever.co.uk slash what's in our products for people in the EU. I'll provide both of those links in the show notes. All right, shall we get on to some questions? It's one of my favorite parts of the episodes. Our first question, Veronica asks, is there a way to determine the quality of a product when looking at the price? This is a question, um, great question, I really appreciate because I, I spend a lot of money on products and I hate more than anything when the quality of the product isn't what I expected for what I paid for it. And I know I'm not alone, I'm sure this trips up a lot of consumers and our Beauty Brain listeners out there. I think it's ingrained in our brains at an early age that the more expensive things are, the better they are, and the less expensive it is, the less quality it is. And cosmetic marketers and marketing people in general definitely take advantage of this phenomena. If someone can get you to pay more money for a product, that's a good reason for them to charge more. Yeah, who doesn't think that more expensive things are just automatically better? I I think almost everyone thinks that, right? It's ingrained in us from an early age. So What we wanted to do today is look at some of the factors that go into what determines the cost of a product. And I think it comes down to about three major things that go into the price and affect how much a product costs. So first, there's the cost involved in making a product. We call that a cost of goods. This would include things like the cost of the raw materials or ingredients, the package, production costs, and some other little overhead in there. And these are the only costs that actually impact how well the product works, in our opinion. Yeah, right. I mean, at at this point, this is where uh, companies can mix up, like, what ingredients are they going to use and how much the ingredients cost them. And so this is where all the difference in performance could, could happen. So these are the costs involved in whether a product actually works better or not. And this is very difficult to calculate when I'm looking at a formula on a shelf. I can look at the ingredient listing and as a formulator, I can say this shampoo or this conditioner that I'm going to buy seems worth it. It seems like an expensive formula when I touch it, but really the costs vary so much from company to company. It depends on how many units are being produced, how many products overall the company makes, what's the manufacturing relationship, what type of equipment is it made on, Big companies have a big advantage here because they can use uh, the advantages of being big and their economy of scale to keep the cost of making products low. However, smaller companies can also make products at a reasonable price by hiring contract manufacturers that specialize in these small runs. But again, it's a, it's there's so many factors going in, it's hard to necessarily predict what the cost of goods is. So let me give you an example from my experience. Thank you. When I worked at my former company, we could make a bottle of shampoo for about a dollar a bottle, right? Mm. And that was all the ingredients and the packaging and the production. So it cost about a dollar to, to make one of those bottles. And that bottle then would sell for about, I don't know, you'd see it on sale for like $3.50 or something. 
if I took that same formula, that same batch of shampoo and started my own startup small company, as I looked into it, that would cost about $8 a bottle to make. So for a little guy, little guy it costs about eight times more than a big guy to make exactly the same product. So there's gonna be that price difference there, but from a consumer standpoint, there's no performance difference at all. Yeah, that goes back to the complication of the formula. Who's making it? Where is it being made? Do you have economy of scale? So the example you gave is where Tresemme maybe was selling directly to a store like Walmart, but if you are not direct to consumer, you know, if you it costs $1 and you sold it for eight, your profit's not $7, right? You have to pay the middleman somewhere and that's the cost of distribution. Exactly. Companies have to pay money to take the product they made, ship it to a warehouse or another distributor um, from the manufacturing plant to the warehouse. Places like Amazon and other warehouses could charge for storage and shipping fees. And then companies have to let this middleman and then finally the store mark up the price so they can make a little money. So there's this distributor margin that's going on if it's been passed on and off. But if you're selling to a major retailer like Sephora, they typically mark up the price that you give them, the wholesale price, twice, so usually double. So if a product costs a four. $30 at Sephora, they probably bought the product for around $15. And that's a pretty good industry standard uh, for a retailer is to take whatever they bought it for from the beauty brand and double the price. Yeah, it's pretty standard. Yeah. So some stores also charge slotting fees, which means the company has to pay extra to get a good spot on the shelf at the store. Again, bigger companies can more easily pay to get their products in prime locations. You know, this also affects the final cost of the product because the brand wants to keep their profit high so that that cost gets passed on to the customer. But again, none of these costs here have any impact on how well the product works. This is just people trying to make their money. Now, the third and final factor that we've considered that goes into the price of a product is brand positioning. So some brands and the story they can tell can just get away with charging more for their products than other brands can. So a great example is the automotive industry. BMW can charge $80,000 for a new car, but Honda can't. You would laugh if you uh, went to Honda and they said, this Honda is $80,000. Whoa, can it fly? Uh, and but that, even would be if, even, that would be even if they're using the same like same parts and it looked the same, you know? Yeah, no one would believe it. It's, it's like um, Lexus. Lexus has this brand image and you know, you can't go onto the Toyota lot and pay Lexus price, even though, you know, they're allegedly using the same engine and, and same kinds of parts. You just, no one would pay that much for a Toyota. So I guess what we're saying more than anything, brand image impacts the cost of the product that you're paying for. While the, the cost of making the product can vary, you know, as much as say 10 times, it's not like we're talking about huge money differences. So when you see something like a two ounce product of, I, I was just looking around for expensive products. So I, I saw this two ounce product of the Dr. Sturm face cream. It was going for $215. Ooh. Now you can bet it didn't cost nearly that much to make. I'd, I'd guess at most uh, you could make that single units of two ounces for $5 or less. The rest is of, of the cost is really just brand positioning. Yeah, that, that happens in the hair industry too. Orbe is a luxury brand and I, I've i tried all the products on my own. You know, some of them are very nice. I don't know that I would pay that price for them in the salon. But again, it's just 
you know, you have these ingredients, you have the packaging, you have the product, and you really generally just can't tell how good the product is going to be based on the price. Certainly there are super low cost products that don't work well, but you can find low cost products that are great, you know, if you're shopping at the drugstore or Walmart or whatever. So cost and product performance, at least when it comes to cosmetics, are not really related. Valerie, I'll, I'll just finish this up with, I'll mention that uh, it's not just consumers that are prone to this belief that more expensive is better. I remember when our company bought the Nexus brand, Alberto Culver bought Nexus, the Nexus, now Nexus is this salon brand and it costs a lot more than our other two brands because we had Tresemme and VO5, which were store brands. But one of the things I found most amazing was that a bunch of the chemists in our lab, they were all excited to get samples of Nex of the Nexus product. You know, they were just really impressed with being able to get their hands on such an expensive shampoo. But the thing is, there was nothing special about the formula. It was pretty standard SLES, cocomidopropyl betaine-based formula. It was just really in a nice shaped bottle. So from a formulation and performance standpoint, there really was nothing special about that product. And it certainly didn't perform better than the Tresemme product, which was the brand I was working on. Yeah, I guess image is everything. Indeed. All right, let's move on to our next question. This one gets into products for the weather we're having now, uh, moisturization. This question comes to us from Faye. She says, many face mists have glycerin or aloe vera in them. Do these ingredients actually moisturize or hydrate the skin? I have tried both and each time my skin feels drier. Hmm. I thought this was a pretty interesting question and it's probably one that a lot of people have. So let's break it down into into two parts because he asked about two ingredients here. First, we'll look at glycerin. Now, glycerin is added to products because it's what we call a humectant ingredient. And this just means that the molecule has a tendency to attract water. So if you look at the molecular structure of glycerin, uh, it has these OH groups on it. So remember, water is made up of H2O, right? Two hydrogens and an oxygen. And so the water molecules are actually attracted to the OH groups on glycerin, and that's what makes it a humectant. There, there are other, other humectants out there, like uh, hyaluronic acid or sorbitol, propylene glycol. Uh, but glycerin is a pretty popular one. It's cheap, it's effective, and it, it, turns, it, it actually will attract moisture to your skin. So theoretically, that moisture is going to make your skin feel better. Now, let's look at what is there proof that it works. Well, there's plenty of proof that glycerin works as a moisturizing ingredient when topically applied to the skin. In fact, it's pretty much a ubiquitous ingredient that every formulator is going to pretty much put in their skin products. And, and some people even put it in hair products, which I didn't get because it's water-soluble and it just rinses away. But I see it there a lot. Yeah, it has a good uh, feel. I think, you know, you can feel it on your hands when you're working it through the hair. I will say that probably the reason I use glycerin a lot is price. As you mentioned, it's a pretty affordable ingredient. It's treated as a commodity in the industry, meaning no one's going to go out and buy this premium glycerin. You're just going to get it as cheap as you can so that you can save the money in your formula for other goodies in there. Exactly. So when you make a lotion, you include glycerin mostly for this for a quick moisturizing effect. Like you said, it has a good effect topically. You could feel it and it attracts moisture. Uh, you're also gonna include 
an occlusive agent like petrolatum, as we talked about in a previous show, and that's going to give you some longer-term moisturizing. So you'll often see both these humectants and these occlusive agents in your products. Now, a product like a mist isn't going to have something like petrolatum. It would be just too heavy for it, but it certainly could include glycerin. So glycerin does work, but it is curious that you're feeling dry, and there's, there is possibly some reason for that. Yeah, so Perry, you made a great point that with glycerin, you can get this quick moisturizing effect, but really long-term, you rely on other ingredients in a formula to have this longer-term moisturizing perception. Glycerin isn't the main instrument in this symphony. You have a lot of other things that are contributing to a moisturizing sensation. I'm also not sure where Faye lives, but glycerin attracts water out of anywhere because it It's just saying, hey, I want water, I'm attracted to it, and it pulls these water particles out. So if your air is extremely dry or you're in an arid condition and your skin has more water content than the air, the glycerin may be extracting water out of the skin. So it's not always the best choice of a humectant in a product depending on where the customer and consumer is living. Exactly, and that could be contributing to that dry feeling you get. Let's talk about the second part. You asked about aloe. Well, aloe is a bit more complicated. See, while glycerin is a specific molecule, we can point to it and say, hey, that's glycerin. Um, Aloe is a plant-derived ingredient that's made up of a bunch of different molecules. Uh, So there's really no single molecular structure of aloe. And this fact leads to the first problem. You, You have no way of knowing the complete composition of the aloe vera extract. The composition can vary depending on what part of the plant was used, what plant species you were using, where the plant was grown, its environmental exposure, and more. You could literally have 10 different aloe samples with 10 different compositions. So it's not so simple to say yes or no as to whether any particular aloe vera is going to be moisturizing. In general, aloe vera contains about 75 potentially active constituents, and this includes vitamins, enzymes, minerals, sugars, saponins, salicylic acid, and amino acids, among other things. The sugars and the amino acids, they may have some moisturizing effects, but it's difficult to separate out just what's having the effect. I will point out that in a 1999 review article, the British Journal of General Practice, the authors conclude in regards to aloe, quote, Even though there are some promising results, clinical effectiveness of oral or topical aloe vera is not sufficiently defined at present. Basically, as far as its use in a medical treatment go, it's just not proven for that. But for moisturizing, it it probably has some moisturizing ability. In a 2006 research paper published in the Skin Research and Technology Journal, they concluded, quotes, our results show that freeze-dried aloe vera extract in a natu- is a natural, effective ingredient for improving skin hydration, possibly through a humectant mechanism. I should note that the improvement was not nearly as much as glycerin, so if you could pick only one ingredient for moisturizing, glycerin would be it in that case. Also, since aloe is a natural ingredient with lots of different components, you mentioned just six or seven uh, just a couple moments ago. It's possible that people do have sensitivities and allergies to it. I wouldn't think that many people are sensitive to glycerin, but aloe with all these different components 
you know, I would imagine that it can be the culprit for a lot of people being adverse to it. I have a friend who can't use any product with aloe in it because it uh, just really breaks her skin out. Allergies in aloe are thought mostly due to the anthraquinones found in them. Those can cause redness, burning, stinging sensation, and maybe even the feeling of dryness afterwards as a result of the immune response. So it's best to make sure you're not allergic before using aloe all over yourself out of a plant. I'll point out one other thing about aloe use, and this is just sort of a industry industry sort of practice, but when most companies buy aloe and put it in their formulas, it's typically just there for label claims. The extract that we used to buy was a 1% solution of aloe vera in propylene glycol. So you buy the raw material from the company, it's 1% in there is aloe. And then we would take that ingredient and then we would use it, say, in a formula at 0.1%. Uh, so the actual amount of aloe in the final formula is really 0.001%. That's like one drop of aloe in a gallon of water, right? Mm-hmm. So. There's That's not much. that much. No. Now, doing that allows you to put it like on your label because you are actually putting aloe in there, but you would not expect it to have any effect. And that often when you when you buy a product and it says there's aloe in it, you know, there is technically, but it's not <laughs> in there. Yeah, it's not in there to actually do that. And the reality is this is true of many natural extracts that are in your products. A classic example of this explanation, Perry, is those uh, sunburn gels that you get at the store, you know, when you're at the beach and you're burned and you need some immediate cooling relief. You say, oh, I'm going to go get this aloe gel. There's not really any aloe in there. Except, you know, drop. Exactly. So (laughs) buyer beware. All right, let's move on to our next question. We We got two more for you. Jessica wrote us and asked us to tell more about salicylic acid and beauty products. She specifically wants to know if it could be used in concentrations more than 2%. So I don't want to go into the formulation aspects of the question um, in terms of exactly how we incorporate it into a formula, but I think it's nice to review salicylic acid overall because in the United States, it's considered an over-the-counter drug product, meaning the FDA regulates the use of this ingredient when it's used in certain Uh, claim aspects in a formula. So salicylic acid is an oil-soluble active known as a beta-hydroxy acid, or BHA. You've heard of AHAs, this is a BHA. Salicylic acid has different functions in cosmetics, such as exfoliation. We all know it treats acne, and it can also be used for wart removal. However, uh, depending on what you want to use it for, the FDA says, hey, we have specific concentration limits and you know, we actually are going to define what you can say the salicylic acid is doing. So for example, when salicylic acid is used as an anti-acne ingredient, the FDA has a monograph that says salicylic acid can be used from half a percent to two percent maximum. But if you're making a wart remover, the FDA says that you can use salicylic acid in a concentration of five to forty percent to remove warts. That 40% was if you put it into like a paste form. So I don't okay. think you get exposed to that as, as much because it's the paste form. Uh, so there was a, a, a lower, usually most of the wart things you're going to buy is like I think 17% is the highest for like a, a standard lotion type thing. Yeah, and those are uh, typically liquid solutions that you drop onto the surface of the wart. So you have more active ingredient content because it's not just about the percent in the formula, but the 
the mode of delivery, making sure that you're you're getting a reasonable amount. So that's a great point, Perry. So if you're going to use salicylic acid for exfoliation, I think they're I don't want to say it's limitless, but I think you can use it. But you can't say in that sense that it's treating acne because then that makes it an over-the-counter drug. And then the FDA has the regulations of up to 2%. Right. Or when you're, as a formulator, when you're using salicylic acid for an application that doesn't have a limit, you still are limited by the fact that you have to be able to prove that your product is safe. And so whatever testing you're, you're doing, now for acne, it's been proven safe and effective at 2%. So if you put 4% in your product, you're going to have to come somehow figure out how to prove that your product is safe, and you can't use the safety data that's used for, say, acne products. Yeah, it's pretty complex. Also, it's not easy to work with. It can be challenging to dissolve in a formula, and it is oil-soluble, so just from a practical application, it's limited. You know, it's, it's very difficult. I think very difficult to use and it can destabilize over time. So uh, best to stick to the concentrations and the reasons for using it according to the FDA. It's a good ingredient. It's an effective ingredient and it can be a dangerous ingredient if you use it wrong. All right, we have one more question. This one comes to us from Lauren. Lauren says she's a listener who is glad to have the show back. So are we. (laughs) So her question is, she says, I'd love to know how legit trends are. For example, everyone's doing those mask thingies. Are they even good for your skin? Is there something better that you can do instead? Or are Korean beauty products just the new hotness? Um, so is like a quesa, how do you say it? Is that quesa? Acai. Acai. Ah, it's a Brazilian acai. fruit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've heard of it. I always call it a quesia or I don't know. <laughs> Can't take you anywhere. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. But she wasn't, is that like the killer ingredient? You know, because she just never knows. So this, this, uh, I, I like this question because I like the... Uh, the inherent skepticism in the question. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke in, in to a, uh, it was an all-girls class, but it was for media journalists at, in a college, uh, and I talked to them about beauty products, and it was it was encouraging to me because uh, I could tell that these women were highly skeptical of beauty product claims. <laughs> I found that encouraging. Well, yeah, I mean, as we've talked before, um, not really much has changed from a technology standpoint in the industry when it comes to cosmetics. The things that we use today are pretty much like the same types of products people were using 20 and 30 years ago. Like my mom, who was in high school in the 70s, I mean, that I wasn't alive, so it seems like a bajillion years ago to me, but you know, she was using lotions and creams and she remembers when Herbal Essence came out. And so they're using the same type of products today as they were years ago. I went to the comparison of Pantene. I looked at the Pantene ingredient list, you know, from like 1998, and I compared it to the Pantene ingredient list now, which is 2018, which is what, 20 years later? And they're pretty much all the same ingredients. Yeah, and Regulations have changed, so maybe there are small, little, tiny changes that you could see there. Cosmetics are safer today than they were many years ago, but for the most part, the formats of the products are the same. You know, lotions, creams, emulsions, not much has changed. That's really the problem in the beauty industry. The technology isn't changing, but consumers, they want new stuff. Yeah, just like in the fashion industry, every season, there's a new look, a new color palette, and 
trends are really important there, but how do we put that into cosmetic products? And that's where these these trends come up. They find new ways to tell the story of products that are essentially working the same way that they were years ago. And that's where you come out with these new hero ingredients and all the focus is on whatever the hottest new hero ingredient is. And the reality is maybe there's some lab data that shows stem cells uh, could be beneficial under certain circumstances. But when you when they end up in products, that, that really doesn't affect how the product is going to noticeably work. Perry, one thing I thought that she asked was interesting uh, was those mask thingies. I believe she's referring to sheet masks, whereas five years ago, maybe we didn't really see that many anywhere or even two years ago. And now everybody's using them, including you, I believe. Uh, we <laughs> Did you ever use that sheet mask you picked up at Cosmoprof last year? Yeah, actually, we got a ton of samples at Cosmoprof and a bunch of sheet masks. And yeah, I, I use a sheet mask and you know, it it, it felt great when I used it. I, I, and now yeah. my skin seems the same as it ever was. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I, to me, you know, facial masks are, I mean, I'm clearly not the right target audience, but um, I, they're more about an experience. But as far as whether it actually is a great improvement for your skin, I don't think there's any long-term improvement you'll get. It's just a fun experience. Well, I think part of it is having a routine, right? So a lot of these trends right now are about having a regimen, a routine. K-Beauty is all about the routine. And so in the United States, uh, K-Beauty is a huge thing because having that big multi-step routine with light layerable products is novel for our culture. Uh, usually it's like wash my face, moisturize, and now it's all about having a regimen. And by having a regimen, I think doesn't matter the products you use, having a regimen will on its own improve your skin health because you're paying attention to it. Beauty product sellers are in a bit of a bind because they have to always grow sales. They have to always come out with new products. And when technology isn't changing, the only thing that you're able to do is to come up with some new story. It it, it kind of reminds me of like the movie industry where you always got to come out with a new movie, and, mm -hmm. but you have to make sure the movie's successful. So the easiest thing to do is just to make a sequel. <laughs> so that's why products are <laughs> all kind of the same, but different a little bit. Uh, so yeah. it's it's a tough business. I look at something like the, the cell phone industry where technology actually is changing and things are getting better. And so the products really can differentiate themselves from things that were around 10 and 20 years ago. You can't do that in the cosmetic industry, and so you're left with these trends, which are more story-based, and people embrace them, but as far as whether they're making products work better, uh, not appreciably. All right, it looks like the clock is ticking, and uh, we gotta go to our other jobs, right? Or <laughs> yeah, I am a scientist by day, so what are we gonna do next time? Well, next time we're going to look at facial sunscreens and what you should wear while you're exercising. And, of course, we'll look at uh, industry news. Incidentally, if you want to ask a question about beauty products, you can click on the link in the show notes. I always include something there. Or better, record one and send on your phone, and then you can send it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. We prefer the audio questions because, you know, it sounds better on the podcast to have more voices. Sure does. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. 
That will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And next time, I think we'll actually read one of the reviews to see if you guys are listening. Good also, idea. don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're the Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're just the Beauty Brains. And we also have a Facebook page. Valerie, uh, I want to remind people the Beauty Brains are now on Patreon. So if you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do it. We're moving away from the advertising model, and since we don't do paid product reviews, uh, this is one way to generate funds to keep the lights on here at Brains Publishing. If you appreciate what we do, head over to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains, and you can donate whatever you can. It's worth mentioning that we have nothing against getting samples, and you know we love prime products, but it's difficult to stay unbiased when you take advertising money from specific companies, or say someone hires you to do a specific product review. So it just makes more sense so the beauty brands can remain un as unbiased as we can uh, to do it this way. So we're new to Patreon, but uh, we will have special bonus information for supporters out there, and maybe like a special live Q&A session or extra episodes or something. I don't know. We're, we're new to it. We'll figure it out. Thank you so much, guys, for your support. Thanks for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone.